Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Laura Dodsworth, an author, journalist, photographer, and filmmaker. Her books, Bare Reality, 100 Women, Bare Breasts, Their Stories, Manhood, The Bare Reality, and Womanhood, The Bare Reality, have attracted worldwide media coverage and excellent reviews. Laura and the creation of womanhood were the subject of a documentary for Channel 4, 100 Vaginas, which has been broadcast around the world. Her latest book, A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponized Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic, has recently been published by Pinter and Martin. I welcome Laura Dodsworth to Savage Minds. I'm most excited about your book because last year during lockdown, you were one of the few people with whom I could have rational discussions on social media. It was a very scary moment for many people. And personally speaking, I I guess you noticed initially I was like, okay, we got a lockdown because where I'm living, we were the worst hit. We were the first hit in Europe and the lockdown measures were severe to say the least. Then as the weeks progressed, it wasn't even a month, I began to see, well, this isn't the plague. We're not dying in the streets. This is affecting a very specific demographic. Why has the government here and elsewhere not spoken to that? So I was most excited to see not only your book coming out, but the title of it, because it is right on target, a state of fear, how we were all put into this crosshairs of fear, made to think that we had to start donning bubonic plague masks and sterilizing ourselves at every corner. When your book tells a different tale about how the government advisors and scientists have used, in a sense, psychological tactics, as you state in your book, to scare the public into complying with lockdown itself as an ideology, on top of the lockdown rules. Could you elaborate how you came to this subject in terms of turning a lot of your more cogent ideas from Twitter into a book and why you felt this drive to make a critique that, as you know, some people will accuse you of being a COVID denier, even though your book does not do that? Um, I haven't been expecting anybody to accuse me of being a COVID denier because I never have denied that it's a virus and that it can cause illness and death. And I don't in the book, so I haven't been expecting that, I have to say. I think you started off um, very, you put it very succinctly and correctly at the beginning. You said that you welcomed our exchanges because you could have a rational conversation with me. And you said that um, it was this scary moment. And you at the beginning also felt like we had to lock down. Now, The problem is, of course, that fear does cloud thinking. It does cloud rational thinking. And that's why that's why it can be utilized to to leverage panic and create a sense of reliance on government messaging. So I found I found those early weeks like you quite disorientating. Um, I have to say, I never really believed lockdown was a good idea for even a day because it had never been done before. And I I didn't know the history of this right at the beginning, but I researched it quickly. Lockdown has never been a, a, it's never been an established tool for dealing with epidemics. You might quarantine the sick and you might quarantine the potentially infectious, but we've never quarantined healthy people before. So for me, something felt quite strange at the beginning to say to a healthy person, uh, 
for instance, me, you may not leave the house. You may not go and work. Yes, you have a family to feed, but that's all on hold. There's no work for you. There's no relationships. No, there's no, there's no education. Um, these seemed really quite <laughs> shockingly strong steps. Um, and I observed the fear in other people and I wasn't feeling it. I think part of that is that some people are a bit more um, impervious maybe. And I'm very alert to language. I was paying attention to the language at the time. And also part of it is that I, I just followed my journalistic nose and did a lot of research into what other experts were saying about epidemics and respiratory diseases and containment measures. So for me, the story of the last year hasn't been so much a pandemic. That's, that's the obvious story, but the story for me was fear, how fear was leveraged, how it was weaponized to create compliance with the rules. And this isn't some bizarre outlier conspiracy theory. There's a very extraordinary document that was released from the SPY B minutes. SPY B are the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviour. That's um, behavioural scientists who advise SAGE and COBRA, who are also advisory panels that feed into the Cabinet Office. And that document basically said that people were complacent because essentially they understood the risk of death for their, for their age and that personal threat needed to be elevated. Essentially said people needed to be more scared to follow the rules because they understood the risk too well. And that is what I argue in the book the government has done. It has deliberately frightened people over the last year. Although the book focuses on the UK, I think it stands up as a case study internationally. And I also in one chapter give examples where we've had similar chinks of insight into behavioural psychology in other countries. The most notable example is Germany, where um, documents were um, leaked and they were covered in Welt am Sonntag, which revealed that the government actually asked scientists to exaggerate the data and to create uh, scary messaging to make people follow the rules. And that document is a bit more dirty in the details than the British Spy B minutes. It suggests things like um, images of people gasping for breath and dying alone at home should do it. That should scare people. And children should be intimidated by the idea that they could be responsible for their parents dying. That'll keep them in the house. So it's it's a tactic that I think has been employed around the world. In fact, Britain exports behavioural science to other countries. The Behavioural Insights team is a very successful, um, legally and operationally separate unit to the government, however employed by them on a contract to provide behavioural science, and they also export behavioural science to other countries. My initial question, intimating that maybe you were expecting to be called a denier, is this. When you and I were speaking last March, I would put up an article towards the end of March, after maybe a month of lockdown here, that questioned the mitigation, and people said, you're a COVID denier. A month ago, you were telling us to lock down. What's changed? And I would say to them, well, I take in information, and I shift my opinion based on the new information. Mm -hmm. Like you, I was suspicious about the idea of locking up perfectly healthy people, but I thought, naively perhaps, that the government had some kind of insight that maybe this was something else and they weren't telling us, and that there was something afoot that maybe we were going to learn about in the coming days or weeks. When that didn't come about, 
We had a very cynical response from Western governments, where in the case of the United States, people were not even to this day have not been given enough money to eat at all. So one can only wonder why, as you've pointed out, in Germany, the kind of behavioral brainwashing that takes place on a governmental level, or the Spy B documents, why is it that behavioral scientists would even be involved in this and our media not have been covering this? Because this seems to me, as you and I saw on social media, some people suggested this was some kind of psychological operation en masse. What has led a government like the British government or the Italian or the American government to then declare emergencies against which healthy bodied people should not only be put in a state of fear, but be kept from accessing their only means of survival, of feeding themselves and their families. That's what doesn't seem to hit logic with me when you see people being told to just stay at home and they'll be taken care of when we all know most of the poor and disenfranchised have certainly not been economically taken care of. Well, I don't think it's a great model anyway, taking care of people staying at home. That's clearly not sustainable. People have to be out and working. And also it's about the social fabric. But um, why, why were so many behavioural scientists involved? Well, one of the big learnings for me in researching this book is just how deeply embedded behavioural science is in government. This isn't, it's not new that governments have used fear to create docility in populations. There are lots of historical examples um, it's just that people don't like to think that they can be manipulated, let alone that they have been, and that might have been what's happened this year. There are obviously arguments for saying that um, the people behind it did it in the population's best interests. But for me, a central tenet of the book is that if we are being nudged towards a greater good, if we are being guided in our own best interests, but we don't know what's behind it, we've given up having agency in determining what, what good is, what our best interests are. Behavioural science is very paternalistic. It doesn't think that you are capable of rationally making the right choices. So it seeks to subliminally manipulate you into making the choices that other people think are best for you. It's basically clever people deciding what not so clever people should do. Should do. And you can see the temptation. You can see the heady temptation of behavioural psychology. It's, a, it's quite sneaky and quite a cheap way to affect massive behaviour change and also see policies through. There are bills coming up in the UK that simply won't um, achieve their aims without behavioural psychology. And I think this is why people should <clears throat> read the book. I mean, I clearly sound very biased saying that, but it's a first step to understanding how how much behavioural psychology is how, is how governments operate now. Because if you concede that one lockdown was acceptable, you'll have to concede the next one for the next crisis. But also if you concede it's okay to manipulate your feelings to influence your behavior for one crisis, again, will you tolerate it for the next? Because this won't be the last time. It's not the first time and it won't be the last time. How, how will they get us to um, make what they consider to be the important changes for the climate crisis, as it's called, it will be behavioural psychology. In fact, there was um, a paper I just saw this week from the University of Bath that said that the ideal window of opportunity for creating behaviour change to deal with climate is using COVID because we've all changed our habits. And it talks about 
people being more malleable when their habits are disrupted. The, the very language um, reveals a lot about how people on mass are seen as being malleable, pliable. And these are tactics that the US Army has used as well. We saw this in the follow-up to the Cold War, where bomb shelters were being sold to people to dig a well into their backyard. And they created a state of fear by convincing people not only that they had to buy a bomb shelter, but that they had to do regular family drills in that bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. And we're talking in the 1950s here, mm -hmm. not London during the raids. So, and we saw this again after 9-11 in New York City. The kids were made to be afraid of rainbows. They actually had to abandon this rainbow-colored scheme where New Yorkers were told on a degree of red and yellow and green and blue, how safe it was to leave their homes in the months following 9-11. Mm. So there is a lot of data to show that fear has been used and that it's backfired in terms of, yes, people were made to feel fearful, but people were also made to be cynical of the very tests that they were trying to move forward using, let's say the rainbow colors mm. in Italy, they use the rainbow colors again. They've got now a ridiculous system of white, green, yellow, orange, and red. And you ask most people what they mean and everyone's throwing up their hands because no one believes it anymore. So there's a double-edged sword here that if the government wants to pretend that these lockdown measures would work in a, another pandemic tomorrow, let's say, many people will disregard this because they've seen that it's been a lot of pushing up certain economic interests. For instance, if you want to avoid wearing masks in Italy, take a flight, go to Sweden, you can go there. And there's no control over the most elite parts of society being able to hand wave the quote unquote lockdown measures. And this has been the case all along. Meanwhile, there's been little to no action taken to protect the grandparents that the government has tried to use as emotional blackmail. It happened in the UK. It happened in the US. Everyone's talking about grandma and grandpa. Have you in your research found any government that's actually rolled out anything to protect these elderly? Because I haven't. Mm, no, no, not really. Um, but I, that's not something I've specifically researched for the book, how the elderly were protected or shielded in different countries. This was part of it, is you will be guilty indirectly or directly of contributing to the death of elderly if you do not lock down. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that, I mean, there was a slogan here, don't kill granny. That was used in one specific part of the country by the local authority. I can't remember which part now, but it was... Um, it was almost like an unofficial slogan, don't kill granny. And the term granny killer was used against people on social media as well, along with terms like COVIDiot. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for the headline this, this week to be who did kill granny because Dominic Cummings is giving evidence and has talked about the fact that um, people with positive test results were transferred from hospitals to care homes. I spoke out about it in my own small way, in my own social media echo chamber last spring, because I thought it was a really abhorrent thing to happen. It's the most obviously bad thing to happen. And it's one of those, it's just one of those classic things where somebody at the top says, this is what we'll do. 
And then everyone underneath just follows what the authority figure is saying. So, you know, in one sense, I'm sorry to say this, but from every doctor, nurse, care home manager, porter pushing somebody on a trolley, everybody involved who moved an elderly person with COVID into a care home is complicit to a degree because obviously then it's spread like dry tinder in care homes. But this is so emblematic of the campaign of fear of the last year that young people were told they could be responsible for their grandparents' death. When probably the biggest killer of old people were these flaws and errors that happened in the state's machinery. I don't think many young people have killed their grandparents by passing on a virus, but we have to remember that we live with infectious diseases all the time. And to put that burden of responsibility onto a young person is a really shocking psychological tactic. I felt a whiplash of shock about it. I was appalled. And you have to remember as well that some young people will have lost their grandparents. How is that supposed to leave them feeling? We were also told at the beginning of the epidemic um, by Neil Ferguson, professor at Imperial College, that about two thirds of the people that would die would die anyway in the same sort of time frame, but their deaths would be brought forward by the epidemic because this is a very age stratified disease. So remember that a lot of the elderly people who died were near the end of their life anyway. So to try to place the burden, the emotional burden of those deaths onto young people is horrible. But scapegoating is a very archetypal human practice. Yes, and it's quite successful. The average age of death in Italy is 83. 83, when I read that, I was really angry, I have to say, because I thought, wait, we've locked ourselves up for deaths that are pretty much on target with the median age of mortality. Mm. This is pretty much a, it's a damning sentence of the people responsible for lockdown, because the same is in, in the UK as well. Prolonging the life of people who are elderly is an important mandate for all of us to uphold. But to what degree should we be putting ourselves into lockdown as a carceral term? It comes from the prison system. Mm -hmm. To what degree should society be imprisoning itself so that people who are 82 can live until 82 and a half? This is a horrible thing maybe for some people to hear me say, but I don't think we've been given that task, even philosophically speaking, by our leaders to ask what is at stake? Because there's totalitarianism on the one hand and there's fear of death on the other. And it seems that our task as humans is to question our fear of death as well. Mm, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I'm sure that this um, campaign wouldn't be so successful if we were more accepting the fact that you will you will die one day. Um, I think actually there's like a, a bigger theme here about a crisis of faith. People, there's a, a crisis of faith in religion. There's various ways we can we can see that. There was, um, but there's also a crisis of faith in our immune system and our bodies. And there's a, a crisis of faith in people being trusted to do the right thing rather than everything being legally mandated or behavioral science being weaponized against people. There's a crisis of faith in various areas. I don't know if you saw, but the slogan vaccination saves was projected onto Jesus above Rio recently. Oh, no, I miss I miss that. Yeah, it's a really interesting intersection between the old religion and what I would say is a nascent religion. And it will be interesting to see what that becomes. But, um, you know, 
once upon a time we thought that faith is what saved people um jesus said belief is what would save you and yet we know we now project the words vaccination saves onto him and beneath beneath the figure of jesus were um young people wearing white t-shirts and white masks lifting one arm in a single salute it looked very cults like it's just one example of a number i've noticed there's been also an embrace by the media about the quick return of COVID vaccination investigations and that's come forth and you have the pushing of the vaccination. If you don't get the vaccination, return to step one where you're the granny killer. So mm. we have a very strange media environment where you have media that largely is going along. Dr. Fauci on CNN, it's, it's a bit totalitarian to see that there's always the same face. It's either him or Bill Gates. And you can't question that. Otherwise, again, you're a COVID denier. And on the other hand, you've pointed out that Spy B member Gavin Morgan said that using fear smacks of totalitarianism and is not ethical. But where mm. is the media covering that? Because that should be part of the mandate to get different points of view about this. And then mm. the recent black fungus in the media, which is now the Indian COVID variant. But now we're supposed to be afraid of the black fungus. But there's little discussion that is very basic medicine. If you give steroids to people, that knocks out their immune system to fight other things. So the lack of being able to get other antibiotics to back up the immune system is why the black fungus is happening. But you see very little discussion of that in the media because that's also a fear. The image of a black fungus and people with parts of their face covered in band-aids is being used to leverage force over people's imaginations even, even before knowledge. It's about the imagination, right? Absolutely. We see the clue with, with behavioural psychology, the, the clue is in the word, it's about behaviour. It's not about your feelings, it's about leveraging your feelings to generate the desired behaviour. Scaring you is just one tactic, which as Gavin Morgan, one of the spy bee advisors, confessed to me, is not an ethical tactic, but leveraging fear is one, one way to alter behaviour. I um, just want to go back to something, because we're talking about uh, a kind of democratisation of risk earlier, the fact that although it's very age stratified, everybody was told they're at risk. There's one ad here in the UK that said, if you go out, you can spread it, people will die. Um, of course, as the, as the year has worn on, um, the infection fatality rates are closer to influenza. We know that the median age of death uh, here in the UK is one year older than the average age of death anyway. And we know it's a very, very patterned disease. It's very related to age and also underlying health conditions such as obesity, hypertensive diseases, Alzheimer's, age-related diseases, and some others. So the idea that everybody was told that if they can go out, they can spread it and people will die, to put that responsibility on people and to make people feel that they were all equally at risk, I think is unacceptable. I don't think, I think ethically dubious is the most generous way that I can put it. Have other members of the Spy B group come forth to speak out or is Gavin Morgan a lone wolf in this? Um, no, I mean, if, if in, in the chapter in the book where I interview Spy B advisors, oh, so the book's called A State of Fear, how the UK government weaponized fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. I interviewed four. Um, 
and also other government advisors who sit on other panels and some who have to remain anonymous. They didn't want to um, speak up publicly or risk damaging their, their reputation and, and their career. So Gavin Morgan was the most, was one of the most clear on the ethics of using fear, but there was another spy B advisor I spoke to who remains anonymous, who said that it, it wakes them up at three in the morning and that they do worry about the dystopic future we're walking into. Um, so they, they were both quite strong on that. Another spy B advisor, also anonymous, told me that they thought using fear was acceptable because epidemics are frightening, but almost in the same breath told me how neurotic psychologists are themselves and, and they were anxious about the disease and was under the impression that psychology had had a very good epidemic. You know, that's, <laughs> that's really how you might look at it in, in the profession. Behavioural science is very much a growing field. They're constantly recruiting new behavioural psychologists in government, in Public Health England and in the NHS. And I'm sure it's the same in other countries. Also in media and marketing, they're being used because it's a very good tool to be able to publicise a product. And the best product we've been given this past year is life, continuing living. And it's quite cynical because some of the stuff mm. that I've had to filter through in all of my reporting on COVID has led me to see that the media is not doing its due diligence to cover this issue from various perspectives. Hence, Fauci and Gates over there. Over on this side of the pond in the UK, there was the initial imperial college input, but that got quickly pushed asunder when there was criticism against they want to kill us all. Why aren't they advocating? You know, because remember at the beginning in the UK, there was more of an idea that maybe we should let the disease take its course within society. And that created the first spike of fear that was often associated with media articles running around that. Then things shifted. Why was the initial imperial model ditched, do you think? Initially, there was the idea that they were going to allow the virus to circulate and not to move towards lockdown. That was in the first two weeks, if you recall. Mm -hmm. And then it shifted towards, oh, we need to work on mitigation efforts because that model will have us all dead. Well, I think that I, I, I can't possibly give the answers on what happened in those two weeks when we pivoted, and I'm sure it will be the subject of decent investigative journalism at some point in the future, because it hasn't been so far, yeah. and there will be documentaries and papers about it. Um, I, I, but I, effectively, the idea of herd immunity became uncomfortable. I think some of that is to do with the word herd. It makes people feel like animals. Um, the idea of any death seemed unacceptable. What people didn't realise is that lockdown itself causes death. Um, I interviewed one disaster recovery planner called um, Lucy Easthope about this. She plans mortuary capacity and, and she told me that um, it's known that these, these measures would increase other types of deaths. Another advisor I spoke to said that they planned for three to four deaths for every one lockdown death. And this was known at the beginning, of course it was, because this is a field of expertise for advisors who advise government. Um, also, once the economy um, suffers, then there's, there's plenty of data, although I don't have it to hand, I'm sorry, that shows how much life expectancy reduces with, um, 
with GDP lost. So, you know, there is no health without wealth. So obviously lockdown was going to impact um, life expectancy, health and create deaths of its own accord. But that wasn't that wasn't really taken into the balance. And I suspect the reason we've never seen any quantifiable cost benefit analysis is because the numbers simply won't stack up in favour of lockdown. But you talk about the media not really um, doing their due diligence. And I think that one big problem with media coverage so far is it's all been within the framework. Nobody has really, not nobody, that's not true, there are some of us, but most journalists haven't examined the issue from outside the framework. So where there is opposition, it is that we should have locked down harder, earlier, sooner. It's not that we should not have locked down at all. That's coming through in Dominic Cummings' evidence in the Commons this week as well. It's as though this narrative absolutely cannot be criticised. And yet there's empirical evidence emerging around the world that lockdowns don't ultimately prevent COVID deaths. Um, and they are brutal tools that cause their own harms. Yes, and I've interviewed some of the creators of the Great Barrington Declaration who similarly predicted with some good evidence that lockdown would create other healthcare disasters, which we are now seeing in many countries. The numbers of people mm. dying because they could not even access cancer treatments, people dying of heart failure, heart disease, other issues related mm. to the coronary system, and then of course diabetes. Those were the top three, along with obesity, factors in the mitigating comorbidities of COVID-related deaths. This is why lockdown has never been used for um, a virus. There's no precedent. So it's become a new orthodoxy. You know, you said yourself at the beginning, you thought that we must lock down. And everybody had that impression because in the blind panic of fear about a pandemic, when they were told that they must lock down, they thought that would that should be what that you know that that's what they should do but there is there is no precedent and not only that it was advised against so um there's a report from the world health organization about mitigating the risk and impact of epidemic and pandemic influenza so okay that's influenza not coronavirus but the um, responses would be the same and it specifically warns against simulation models being relied upon because they they provide a, a weak level of evidence so that's models such as imperial colleges um, and they they don't have randomized controlled trials to test their assumptions but this, yes the strategies and effectiveness for um, influenza and coronavirus would be similar and isolation of sick individuals is recommended but it's noted that the evidence for that is very low but quarantine of exposed individuals, that's the potentially infectious, is not recommended in any circumstances. And mass quarantine measures are also not recommended due to lack of evidence and the harms they cause. And that's a report from 2019. So just before all this happens, not only has there never been a precedent for lockdown, it was specifically advised against. Right. And in the early weeks when... Imperial College was heading towards this notion of herd immunity and people freaked out over this. The BBC, uh, one of the major media outlets that reported on this, they pushed back. Yet, as you know, there's been no precedent for this, meaning the precedent would give rise to the idea that something does or does not work, where the recommendations last March were home isolation of cases, 
home quarantine, social distancing, social distancing of those over 70 years of age, and the closure of schools of universities, some of which we know today to be completely useless. The rates of mm. transmission, for instance, by school children. There's been no evidence, to my knowledge, of infection amongst school children. Have you found differently in the UK? Um, I haven't noticed, no, I absolutely not. It's it's not been an issue, but I will be honest, I'm not very up to date on, on that data for the last several months. And something in me has kind of tuned out the data most recently. And I think that's because I realized it, it didn't matter what evidence or data you presented, it wasn't cutting through. And that's because of the behavioral science approach this has all been about emotion and imagination, as you said, and not data. Yes. Well, give us some more examples of how emotion's been used over people, because as yeah. you, you might have seen on my Facebook page, I get people every so often getting angry with me, accusing me of spreading misinformation, because I say to question the information we are given. I haven't even made a, a statement of judgment. I'm just saying, check it mm. out. Read beyond yeah. this. Okay. All right, I'll give you. I'll just give you several kind of um, examples of how fear has been used. Firstly, there's the language used by politicians. Sometimes they just um, they have their own very cat-handed, clumsy attempt at using behavioural psychology, and it and it doesn't really go very well. Sometimes a lot of thought has been put into the language they use. You know, you can you can sense the pen of the psychologist in the speech writing. So very strong authoritarian and martial language. Evoking war is um, interesting. No statesman can truly believe that a war against a virus is anything like a war against um, a hostile nation. But that's that's the language they evoke. And I think that a big part of that is because obedience is required in war. You suck it up and you do your part for your country. Um, and it also elevates the sense of threat. A advertising, the government and Public Health England became two of the biggest advertisers in the UK over the last year. Examples would be early on, there was um, one ad which showed young teenage boys, I think maybe they're around 16, in a park uh, with the strapline COVID kills. Well, it's killed very, very few teenage boys. And that was this idea that we're all equally at risk. Well, we weren't. I'd say ultimately that will damage trust in government and public health information. Another strapline was don't let a coffee cost lives. As though if you meet somebody for a coffee, you're going to kill people and at no point was it ever illegal to buy a takeaway coffee and go for a walk with a friend oh the heady privilege uh, and I'd say actually for some people meeting a friend for a coffee saved lives because it's a really important thing to do to have social contact to have chats I've gone for walks with friends where they cried uh, and I needed that support too because it was a really difficult time at points in lockdown I had one friend talk to me about how she'd considered family suicide because she didn't know what would happen with her business and the future looked so bleak for her children. I mean, the idea that people should be put off socializing with a friend and having a coffee is, it's abhorrent. Um, another campaign said, look him in the eyes and tell him you always keep a safe distance or look her in the eyes and tell her you never bend the rules. And these, these ads um, showed very close, grainy um, images of people's faces with very medical oxygen masks on. And it was kind of reminiscent of a horror film, you know, really grainy and 
you could see every pore and mark on the skin and blood vessels in the eyes. And what it what it sought to do is really create ill will and blame between people. So all the blame is between us. If you break the rules, you'll kill people. Completely ignoring the fact that we know, for instance, that 8,700 people in the UK have died as a result of catching COVID in hospital. Or, you know, this scandal coming out about the care homes that the elderly people weren't tested. It would be horrible if we pointed the finger at people who work in care homes and hospitals. I don't think that would go down very well, but it's the same thing. It's blaming the population for policy mistakes. Also, um, COVID has been in the media 24-7. It's been non-stop doom-mongering. And I can't lay all the blame for that at the government's door. So although the book is about how the UK government weaponised fear, I've got a chapter on the media as well. There's lots of ways in which the media is complicit. I've got an article coming out end of the week, actually, on, on Spiked about that. But we've been told COVID is in everything from the air we breathe to the hugs we receive, from ice cream to semen. It has been relentless. Daily deaths have been... <laughs> the daily death toll has never been presented in the context of how many people tend to die every day or from what other illnesses. So it creates this focus, what's called the availability heuristic. It creates bias, all you think about. We've been told about hospitalizations, but never recoveries. Unless you'd researched this, you might be left with the impression this is a disease nobody gets better from. And we don't do this for other diseases. We don't do this for Clostridium difficile. We don't have death dashboards for other diseases. Um, another tactic has been um, the encouraging of social conformity. So you'll see the upholding of heroes versus the denigration of COVIDians where being a hero is about staying at home and protecting the NHS and saving lives. I wash my hands to protect Nan. It's all about doing things for other people. It's never been about thinking for yourself or listening to your own internal moral compass. It is about obeying rules to protect other people. And covid idiots, people who might kill granny or um, on July the 4th in the UK last year, when people went to the pub, when pubs reopened, the media coverage was quite horrible. It was a bit like uh, the criticism of gammons or um, leave voters after Brexit. And it divides people up. You know, you've got the socially responsible people and then the people that dared to go to the pub once it was legal. You know, which team do you want to be on? You want to be on the right team. Herd mentality kicks in. And who wants to be a covid -ia? So there's been a lot of that. And there is a degree to which the behavioural scientists were behind that. I watched MPs question David Halpern, who's the head of the Behavioural Insights team, and Stephen Reicher, who's a behavioural psychologist who is on the SPI-B panel. And Stephen Reicher was saying that he'd talked to BBC, I think it was the Today programme off the top of my head, it's all in the book, about um, how they needed to have more examples of people who were doing the right thing because then that encourages other people to do the right thing. And he said they did that straight away. So there's kind of a, maybe there's a bit of a hotline between these influential advisors and certainly the government and people in the media, which helps propel some of these narratives going forward. But it's also a natural human inclination. There's a study that showed that people were more judgmental towards people who questioned the rules. It seems to be a basic human instinct that during an epidemic, we want social conformity, there's more xenophobia, 
and there's more disgust about contagion and dirt. Um, another way that food was leveraged was the use of fines. We have the most extraordinary fines here in the UK. I have been waiting for more backlash. I've written a couple of articles myself and having researched the levels and fines going back through time, I can say quite confidently we have the highest fines now in the UK since the Dark Ages. Um, you could be fined £10,000 for a snowball fight. Two students were fined £10,000 each for organising a snowball fight in a park in Yorkshire in January. Quite incredible. Um, I would say that masks are also one way in which fear has been created. So one MP told me that masks were originally brought in because the economic bounce back wasn't positive enough after the first lockdown ended. But then it was noticed that they became a signal, a reminder we're still in an epidemic. People keep more distance from each other, apparently, with their masks on. If you think about it, the masks make you a walking billboard. They keep fear in your face, literally. David Halpin, the head of the Behavioural Insights team, in the same question-answer session with MPs, referred to masks being a signal, and he referred to signal before he used the term underlying evidence. There isn't um, any decent evidence that masks are effective or useful. This is one of the things that people find incredibly shocking. My book went through two different fact-checkers. Publishers have been really rigorous about it, and... I've been rigorous about the research um, and fact-checking myself. But the first fact-checker pulled me up on the, the masks comment in my book, and she said, they do work. Look at this government website. So I go to the UK government website. It's not, it's not evidence. It's not research. It's not an RCT. It's policy. It's advice. Scroll down, and it says, I quote, there is no published research from randomized controlled trials on the role of masks or face coverings worn by the general population in the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. The evidence to support their use is weak. Making accurate estimates of the degree of protection offered by face masks based on the available evidence is not possible at the moment. They may offer some limited protection in some contexts, but are not a substitute for practicing other behaviours that have a significant impact on transmission and for which the evidence is strong. Frequent hand washing, respiratory hygiene, physical distancing and limiting social contact. So that's published on the 24th of July 2020. That's published after they mandated masks. That's the best the UK government could do on evidence after they made masks a legal requirement. There was um, a, an RCT conducted in Denmark, the Danmask study, which also didn't find a signif statistically significant reduction in infection for mask wearers. It wasn't designed to test whether masks protect other people to be fair, but it didn't find protection for mask wearers. Um, the misleading use of statistics is another way that fear has been weaponized. Um, I mean, just recently, SAGE predicted there would be 10,000 hospital admissions per day in mid-July. That was a mid-range estimate. And it's, it's, I don't know what to say, it's kind of ludicrous. It doesn't realistically take into account a vaccinated population. Um, it was three times the peak of the, the January peak. Are we really meant to believe that 10,000 people per day in mid-July will be in hospital? 
three, three times as many as January. And that's during the summer as well. And we know that there's um, a seasonal effect on the virus. So I think there's widespread suspicion now that the release of statistics like that are to create um, alarm and to keep the public focused on following the rules. Models are simulations, they're not evidence and they're not crystal balls. Um, and I think it gets harder to take these predictions seriously when the claims are that extreme. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. We seem to have a counter effect as well. The more that governments lie to people, in the future, people will be less likely to believe them, especially since, as you know, there was the Damask study of masks and a Lancet review of multiple studies. Mm -hmm. There seems yeah. to be a media that's willing to go along with the idea that masks work. Meanwhile, I could be wearing a COVID-filled mask that I never wash every day, right? Like, mm -hmm. where's the science in that? Well, there isn't any. I would say they've become talismanic. But uh, you know, every every revolution and new religion has a wardrobe change. I can't help feeling that masks become the vestiture of the faithful. Obviously, people want to try to protect themselves and to protect others, and they've been told masks work. The the hard truth is the evidence is flyweight for masks. And what about the recent revelation about six weeks ago that Patel then speaks out about how at the beginning of the pandemic, she had been one of the people within the government who wanted to close airports. It seems to me that if governments around the planet were interested in stopping the spread of the virus, the logical first step before locking us all up in our homes would have been to shut down cross-border travel. If you have the choice between A and B, A being that you're locked up in your home for months and months at a time, or B, that you just make the sacrifice, you can leave your home, but you can't travel to Venezuela, you can't travel to Egypt. Why mm. was the government so slow to think about obvious, easier measures? Was it because that there's an elite class that is being served in all this, that they need their airplanes, they get their airplanes? Or what is it? I've seen a lot of theories about this from the media to the internet. I can't really answer. I, I don't have the answers for that. It wasn't the, ter the terrain of my research. But uh, there are certain countries which can't lock down their borders. That's crazy. We have thousands of lorry hauliers coming into the country every week. We simply can't shut down our borders. It is not possible. We're not New Zealand. There's no comparison. And I, I would also, you, you said you didn't interview the founders of the Great Barrington Declaration. I'm going to go back to something that Sinetra, Professor Sinetra Gupta said last summer. I can't remember the article in which I read it, but she said that um, actually this wouldn't be as serious as Spanish flu potentially because we do travel because of global travel. So there was a study that found that um, T cell immunity was giving some protection against COVID in 20 to 50% of the population. Wasn't very widely reported, funnily enough, probably because it was such good news. Um, but we have that T cell protection from previous coronaviruses. 
That's right. That was repressed because it came out around the same time that study said you can get the virus twice. So of course the media yeah, exactly. ran on that. You can get the yeah. virus a million times, but let's not talk about the more subtle aspects of science that we've had at our feet since the AIDS crisis, which is T cell responses to disease. Now, yeah. what about the flu? Has the flu disappeared, Laura? We're not hearing about the flu. I'm not sure because it's 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 not it's not my field of expertise i know where you're going with that and maybe maybe not i'm really i'm really i'm really not sh- i'm really not sure because it's not it's not my thing um i will say getting a book out this quickly while we're in the time is well because i could blow my own trumpet here but it's a big endeavor you know writing a book is not a small thing it's a hundred thousand words and we went, i went from idea to publication in nine months which is fast i did a lot of reading a lot of books a lot of papers um I've interviewed many people I've watched documentaries it was a very intense period of research so to a degree I had to be quite focused and that's why I'm saying several months ago I started tuning out some of the data because it was apparent for me that we were not going to pivot on the data so I'm quite focused on the behavioral science absolutely and I appreciate that as well because the propaganda aspect of what you're dealing with is itself tremendous Uh, the yeah. clap for carers. We saw the clap for carers jump borders. It happened mm. with the NHS. It became a thing in the US. It became a thing in Italy. So did the many mm. media highlights of happy people. I'm putting that in quotes. Happy people singing from their balconies. We saw mm-hmm. this in Italy. We saw this in, mm. in England. The mm. media wanted to push this idea that of, of many contradictions, I have to say. The same media that months before COVID existed was running pieces about how people working from home are having difficulties because they don't get support for, let's say, paying part of their rent or whatnot. Or the fact, the irony is that a lot of disabled people who for three decades have been asking to work from home never got that wish you had the American with Disabilities Act that was pushed after years and years of advocacy, but suddenly it took a pandemic and suddenly everyone was not only allowed to work from home, they were told to work from home. The same media running stories about how this is the future, not one mm. media story, because you and I both know people who live in London, flatmates in four and five numbers of people. How are you going to do work in a home that you share with other adults mm. also doing their work. Meanwhile, I can't write an article while someone is in the next space or even in the same room singing because their job involves singing, for instance. This is the contradiction as we're sold this very bizarre narrative about how working from home is the future. We're also sold it as ecological and as ecologically minded as I am. I'm first practical minded. I could barely do my work with my kids at home. How am I supposed to do writing when I've got four flatmates, one who does PR on the telephone like Jerry Maguire all the time, another, the hypothetical opera singer who's practicing, right? So we're being sold a, a huge lie because you can't even work with flatmates in the house on a good day. How are you supposed to do this ad nauseum forever? Of course, it's a total middle-class luxury and it's something that just shocked me so much last year. Um, you're talking about the, the media showing these stories of people singing from their balconies and clap for carers. Well, I wanted to photograph people in lockdown and show how it was impacting them. And I just couldn't relate to that really cheery vibe because I was not feeling it. 
um, I couldn't get a commission um, in places I normally would hope to uh, because I wasn't I just wasn't telling the story they were interested in. In fact, I had some criticism last year in writing for The Telegraph and spiked as though it's really bad to be right wing. I mean, not that spiked even is right wing. Um, in fact, I don't even think there's a right left paradigm anymore. I'm not interested in it. It doesn't exist. So the people are not then they don't understand what politics is about and if they still think it's about right and left. Anyway, I pitched pieces um, to publications that would take them. And the Telegraph ran a piece where I photographed and interviewed women who live in one room with their children. And I'll be honest, I didn't know people live like that in London today. There's a woman who lives in a room with her son. They share a bed. And when she, you know, when he plays on the floor, she'll tread on him by accident because it's such a tiny space I can't tell you they have no window and no ventilation and I saw um, a woman who lives in a room where she and her three children share a bed it's a shared kitchen and a shared bathroom and people are talking about social distancing and I'm thinking do you know that multiple families live in one house where they share one toilet what it's it's the most middle class idea that You'll be at home while other people are in the warehouses and the shops packing your shopping for you and bringing it round. And, you know, you can drink, drink your shabby in the garden in the evening and learn how to make sourdough bread and still get your money from your safe job. But other people were having a truly terrible time, even here in the UK, where there was a lot of government financial assistance. Um, and I, I just felt such a such a betrayal of people to tell the truth about what was about what lockdown really felt like there are people who have enjoyed it and have had some improvements in their life and you know those are things that they can take into the future um you know they can they can keep some of that change and good on them if they can but lockdown hurt a lot of people and the campaign of fear hurt a lot of people i interviewed various people for first person stories in the book about how they developed issues from the campaign of fear and lockdown such as agoraphobia, OCDs, self-harm, panic attacks and even attempted suicide and I, I really feel it, at the end of this exercise the impossibility of weighing, weighing these stories in the balance because there's the numbers and we have not been given the numbers yet, the quantifiable cost benefit analysis of the policies of the last year. But how do, you, how do you weigh those qualitative measures? How do you weigh up the stories? How do you weigh up the life potentially saved from interrupting the transmission of COVID with the person who was at home too scared to go to A&E and didn't get treatment for their heart disease and then died the same year because it's too late for treatment or the person who jumped from a bridge? How do you weigh that up? Indeed. Triage is a concept that's used in wartime situation. And it seems that we lost the plot with this across the world. I've seen no countries that have said, wait, people are dying at 83 in Italy. That's longer than the average lifespan. Why are we locking up people who are of all ages, but far under 83 to benefit another week or two or six months? And again, this might sound cruel, but I think we needed pragmatism and less emotionalism on the seats here. Where was that round table of people, not just sage, even ministers involved in this discussion? Because your book talks about fear and the fear of death. And this is a deeply societal 
and psychological issue, but it's also a philosophical issue. Why did the BBC not have nightly talks from some of our best philosophers talking about death? You're right, people have abandoned religion, especially in the UK, you see a, a pushback against religion, but should the new religion be, I got vaxxed today, here's my selfie on Instagram. Yeah, we've, um, we've turned on a dime, really, as they say. Um, there was so much talk about protecting people's rights to religious exemptions. You know, it's a protected characteristic here in, in law in the UK. And yet I listened to Moral Maze on the BBC Radio 4 programme uh, the other night, talking about whether there should be a religious exemption for refusing a vaccine. It's amazing how we've changed all of our values almost overnight. And we're going to see more of this because what the news is reporting from scientists, and this, this is not new, they've been saying this since around 2000, there are more pandemics on the horizon. And I feel like this wave of fear moderation that's been going on is a preparation for the future. And people are going to be expected to step up and respond appropriately, whether it's the mask look, the mask under your chin look, or that you have it in your pocket at all times. We've had months of having to carry paperwork with this, and you have to always check the internet to make sure it's the latest type of paperwork because it changes sometimes with great frequency. So you're living in this constant investigatory stature of where can we go, what can we do, how many meters, Am I allowed to go jogging with or without a mask? And then I'm seeing, I saw yesterday some sports games happening with people wearing masks. And I'm thinking, this is extremely dangerous. Yeah, I think that um, you are right. There is sort of prepping for us to continue to think this way. There was a headline on Bloomberg several weeks ago. Um, I've got it written down somewhere because I, I, I collect these and I, I can't remember it now exactly, but basically saying that we need to prepare for a permanent pandemic that will never go back to normal. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is a crazy way to think. This is not a fun way to think. I think everybody has a duty at the moment to consider how they want to envisage society. How do you want society to, to look? Is that how you want to live? So you're in a permanent state of preparation for a pandemic. You talked about the Cold War earlier and 9-11, and I talk about a trajectory of fears in the book. And we've gone from imagining our threat, our enemy, to be in this distant land, a snowy, faraway land, where a button could be pressed and a giant weapon could take out a country, to focusing our fears on terrorism, um, so that's about leaky borders, you know, anybody standing next to you on a, on a train platform or sitting next to you on a bus or in a concert hall, someone who doesn't look quite right, they might be brown and have a black beard, you know, are they a terrorist? Any bag that's left in a public place could be a danger. So they come from another land, but they're amongst us. To the fears being each other and ourselves, and it's as though our geopolitical borders have shrunk to the human body. And when we are sold as the risk to each other, um, I saw a, a police officer in Ontario fining somebody for shaking hands on social media the other day. When we are seen as the risk to each other, then there is a justification for treating us as bioterrorists. 
And you talked about lockdown being a castle term, and there we go. We're not talking about quarantine, we're talking about lockdown. It's a, it's a punishment term. And I don't mean this in a very literal way, like it was designed that way, but language doesn't really happen by accident. I think it's part of a broader theme about our fears shrinking. The fear isn't really of the virus. The fear is of people because it's the hug that we're told that gives it to you or the breath of a stranger standing next to you at a bar or the danger of, of contact between a grandparent and a grandchild. So our fears have come really, really close and it seems to be encouraged by the state and the media. Yes, we're seeing a repeat of what was happening in the U.S. after mm. the Second World War. And it's, it's not coincidental that those very same tactics are being recycled because they seem to have been quite successful. When you can convince people to be wary of some of the propaganda you've cited around COVID is a paste, a copy and paste of what happened in the Cold War era in the U.S. Be careful about speaking to Ivan. Those were the posters. Mm. You had to be very careful of your neighbors if you thought they might be Soviet sympathizers. And there's a load of recycling of these message of fear of other people. It's not only the disease, but now we're supposed to fear other people. We're supposed to fear incorrect phrasings of language, which spills over from other current ideologies also in force, if you catch my drift, where... We're being taught how to talk about a disease, not only to fear the disease, but we're being taught how to approach it, linguistically speaking. Yes, uh, I agree. <laughs> There's no doubt that we've been um, living through an epidemic, but we've also been living through a propaganda event. And I think that's, that's the thing that would be difficult for some people about my book. But there are, there are a number of indications that uh, there has been propaganda. Um, the stifling, the in inhibition of, of free debate in the media, um, actual censorship, Ofcom guidance. Uh, we even had an MP who made a, a website with lists of journalists and scientists who had got it wrong and were dangerous. Um, misleading use of statistics, you might call it lying even. Um, and the leveraging of emotions specifically fear to make people behave. It is propaganda. So for me, that's more frightening than the disease. Yes. And now the Indian variant, these variants, they come out now with words. It's either the country, which is quite ironic, because when Trump called this the China disease, he was called a racist. But it's OK to call it the Indian variant. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I guess so. It depends who's saying it. People have been, it's, there's been a very um, hyper-partisan approach to the epidemic, which hasn't helped the solutions at all. But anything Trump said was, was supposedly wrong. Absolutely. Even though now we're seeing it's the Indian variant and the black fungus, because black fungus is far more fear-inducing, right? So now we are seeing that happen. That's been spun for about two weeks. I'm waiting for a new country to emerge. Has there been any country that's done this properly, the mitigation? Has any country, in your estimation, done the right thing? Mm, well, Sweden's done a lot better because they didn't um, legally mandate as many restrictions. Uh, they had more transparent public health information and less of an onslaught in the media. I had a friend who moved to Sweden early on, um, and he said that, you know, there aren't signs everywhere, for instance. Um, 
I think a lot of people truly would have enjoyed life better in Sweden than the UK. And certainly there's a lot of people going there for holiday. So, I mean, why relax masked when you can relax unmasked and not reminded that you're about to die? Is there a greater story to be told here, though? You mentioned earlier on about how in your early investigations, you noticed that behavioral control over society is not new. Does this bode badly for our governments if they plan to continue using fear-mongering, not just in this situation, like in the post 9-11 or the 7-7 era, where the posters all over the tube and the New York Metro were, see something, say something. So you become mm. suspicious if you see a bag and you call the police and it was someone on the, on the train who forgot their birthday gift to the party they were going to, but that becomes a media event. Yes, I do think it does bode badly, but not so much for government, but for the people who, um, the people and our relationship with the government. Um, I have made this book quite specifically about COVID and the UK, but like I said, it works as a case study internationally because so much of what's happened has been synergistic. Um, I, a big learning for me was how much behavioral psychology is part of government. And I do think that bodes badly for us. It's been enormously su successful. And I think people have to realize that the government will have muscle memory, that if they need to leverage our emotions to make us vote a certain way or to hide indoors or whatever it is, I don't see why they would not do it again as it's worked so well. And I really want my book to make a very strong clarion call for an independent inquiry into the use of behavioral psychology. Because the problem is, it's not, it's, it's actually, it's literally anti-democratic. If you are being subliminally manipulated, if your behavior is being guided without you being aware of how and why, you don't have full democratic agency. So the things I would have seen as quite innocuous and possibly helpful before, like helping us cut down our smoking with behavioral psychology techniques, and I think all of it needs examining. And one could make the argument that the manipulations we have been handed could even and have even affected electoral outcomes because the way that people vote for politicians is largely since the last 15 months informed by information that both political parties, governments and media have been pushing forward. So the fact that someone votes for, let's say, the US, current US President Joe Biden, a lot of that voting power, it orbited the various narratives that come out of the White House and come out of the Congress. One of the major items, of course, has been the nonstop assault of COVID information. If we're making electoral choices as to whom to vote for, and that information about COVID is inaccurate, one could easily make the argument that this has been part of a larger subversion of democracy. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it shouldn't be any surprise that we have a government that leverages fear when this has been a similar approach to how they've won elections before. Dominic Cummings said at an event called Nudge Stock, which is about behavioral psychology in 2017, that the future is experimental psychology and data analytics and the future is now. We're in it now. This is going to go down not very well for those who were angry at Cummings for taking his trip to the castle, if you recall, last mm -hmm. year. 
<laughs> how is the media going to balance his testimony now with the fact that he, according to many, ushered forth policies that he himself did not follow? This is one aspect, although it's not a big aspect, because I think that's the cover story. The deeper story is, will the media, as you say, come clean? And will the government come clean on the data? But what about the fact that we are given data of deaths every day and we're not given the comparative data as to how many people died the same time last year? What age group were they? And I would like to have data that looks at from day one of this, how many people died due to other causes, comparatively looking back at that. There will be people looking at this, but I think it might take a long time for this information to come out. Are there yeah. any public entities proposing that this get fast-tracked? Because I would have to say this is an urgency in the sense of, unless this is clarified now, the next either version of this virus, the next variant, or the next pandemic will mean that you and I are once again on Twitter talking to each other in a DM saying, what the actual hell is going on here? Because in those conversations you and I had, I felt like you were one of the two or three people I could talk to sanely about what was happening. So many people lost their mind. And I mean, including mm. on my part of the alleged political spectrum, the left, which again, can we say left or right anymore? But there's a real problem when I feel like we're having to use Morse code to talk to each other, if you catch my drift. Well, I'm not, I've been talking quite plainly. Um, I think asking people not to be frightened is futile. Fear is hardwired and there's nothing actually inherently wrong with fear. The problem is when it's not calibrated to the threat or when we're being manipulated. And this is really why I've written the book. I think, I think the first step is for people to understand the manipulation, um, the way that behavioral science has been wielded against them to make them behave, how it's not just this, but how it can happen again and how it's happened before. That's the first step. The most important inquiry for me, and I will do everything I can to push for it, would be one into behavioral psychology. The public inquiry, I just anticipate being a complete whitewash. It's, I believe, um, been proposed to happen in 2022. And although you talk about urgency, I think that's too soon. I think that's before the economic pain. And that's probably why it's scheduled for 2022. It's amazing to see how many governments say, even my local government, something very urgent about cars coming up on the sidewalk, hitting me as I leave my house, not exaggerating there. We can't look into that because of the COVID issue. Wait, is COVID now becoming the new government's, the cat ate my homework? And I'm seeing mm -hmm. that it's being a bit too overused, if you catch what I'm saying here, because there are immediate needs for information because information is power accurate information and studies that will help governments respond better the next time because mm. unless you can show me and i mean boris johnson or whoever's in power that my staying in my house is actually going to do a good for society there is no need for this what i would have liked to have seen and i keep banging on about this but where were the meals on wheels for elderly people? They said the elderly are at risk. I don't deny that. Where were the meals ready to bring to each of their homes? Where was the mass hiring of a cadre of university students who opted out because they don't wanna do school online, who get well-paid jobs to deliver elderly their meals? Because we know from scientific study that that age category 
is extremely healthy and extremely resistant to the virus. But I saw no measures made, no suggestions to protect this vulnerable population. And the Great Barrington creators have argued that lockdown created more deaths. They said this to me, the two I interviewed, and I would like to see the information on this because we shouldn't be put into this position, Laura, that we are being made to feel either that we're acting out of order or out of law to question this. Or in the case of Mark Crispin Miller from NYU, who is put under investigation and defamed by his colleagues for saying to his students in a propaganda course, read everything, question everything. He was called a COVID mm. denier, an anti-masker. Mm. Yes, the censorship and the stifling of debate has been um, unhelpful on so many levels, scientifically in terms of fear, because prevent presenting different viewpoints would help people rationalize and also uh, philosophically. But there is much to learn for the next time. And you have to look, you have to look on the positive. Um, at the end of the day, I, I do have faith in people. We don't want to be manipulated. We don't want to be censored. We don't want to live in a state of fear. And I have faith that we will recalibrate. Thank you.